Oh, here I am. Okay. <laughs> oh, my goodness. I could tell you quite a story about this morning. But um, <laughs> I was like, okay, run the video. Oh, wait, there's no video. Shoot, that's right. So good morning, Storyline. It's so good to be together. Thank you for being here. Um, years ago, I, I'm a teacher. I've been teaching at Lakeshore High School. About to start year 33 at Lakeshore High School, right? Yes, I know. I know. Thank you. You're like, this guy is so stupid. What is he thinking? <laughs> Anyways, we have in-services from time to time, at, um, as teachers do. And a lot of times they're 
not that great. And sometimes they're better. And we had one years ago, and the presenter got up and said, Can you, we, we're going to do this exercise, and I want, you to, to, I want you to describe yourself in one word. One word, all right? And I was like panicked. You know, think about it. You guys know me. I'm like, one word, please, right? Yeah, yeah, amazing, whatever, yeah. So many to choose from. And so uh, I couldn't do it. I was absolutely lost. I couldn't do it. So I came home. I told Lisa about it. And, she, and here's her response. She goes, oh, I, I have several one-word descriptions for you. <laughs> Thanks, honey. So encouraging, right? Someone recently asked me to describe storyline, and it got me thinking, could I describe our community in one word? And certainly... We can't do that, right? There isn't only one word, but there is, I think, one word of many that describes us, and that is the word mission. I think mission would be a good start to describe storyline. We believe that Jesus knew what he was doing. I think that's one of the things that I love about this community. We believe that Jesus knew what he was doing in helping people to find faith and then helping people to form faith in the grace of God. So we, we're not only looking at, like, what, what does he want us to believe, but we're also looking at how did he help people to believe? And are there ways that we can structure our life together in such a way that emulate that? Because we believe that Jesus knew what he was doing. Here is the problem with that a little bit. The way he did that, the way he helped people to find faith in God, the way he helped people to form faith in God continually frustrated the religious establishment like all the time at the very best they were kind of shaking their head going what and at the worst i mean they were just incensed with him so he absolutely um you know he frustrated the religious establishment he confounded the political authorities as he challenged everyone else with this big and beautiful view of god and vision for life and that's what I want to talk a little bit about this morning. Because Storyline is, on a, is a mission community. We are a community on a mission to experience and enjoy, embody and extend Jesus' view of God and vision for life. Over and over again in the Bible, we see Jesus in real life settings taking on real life issues in a way that made real life come to life in surprising ways that made real life come to life, in ways that the religious authorities and religion never really spoke to or addressed. And our hope and prayer is that together with God's guidance and by God's grace and through his love and through his power, we will see that same thing happen in us and through us. And so this is one environment where Storyline gathers we gather together on Sunday mornings to consider how Jesus can help us to reframe our view of God and to recast our vision for life and our lives. That's one, of the, one way to describe what we're doing together. So um, I was also looking up this week are the names for God because often these are one-word descriptions for God, ways to try to explain who God is and what he's like. And there's all kinds of names for God in the Bible. A lot of us don't know that. I didn't really, I wasn't familiar with that. But God, um, one of the names for God is a, a Hebrew word, two words, Elohai Selakot. 
Elohai Selakot, and it means, translated, the God of forgiveness. The God of forgiveness. And in our read this summer through the book of John, which is one of the biographies of the life of Jesus in the Bible, we've come this morning to chapter 8 in the book of John. And here we see Jesus reframing our view of God and recasting our vision for life specifically around this issue or this topic of forgiveness. And believe it or not, it's actually a controversial subject, forgiveness. There is a profound disagreement inside the church, outside the church, with religious people, secular people. There's lots of talk about what forgiveness could look like or what it should look like or how it works or how to get it. And not a lot of agreement, frankly. And in one corner of that disagreement, we kind of have religion of all flavors, right? And in religion, forgiveness is really, I mean, when you boil it down, what it is, is it's, it's an achievement. It's something that you have to attain somehow, some way. It's reserved for moral champions and spiritual giants who do all the right things and push all the right buttons and jump through all the right hoops. And then in the other corner over here, you have those who refuse to even acknowledge that a loving God would even need to consider forgiveness because how could he ever be you know, mad or upset with anyone for any reason? And as usual, Jesus, we find right in the middle of that tension. Jesus presents us with a God who, who is truly infuriated by injustice, oppression, abuse, and, and violence and that's perpetrated against his children. And he's also brokenhearted because all of that has come into the world and it's taken place at the hands of his children. And so the forgiveness of God is absolutely critical. It's totally important. One of the ways we've put it in the past is that we all have broken hearts. And we all have broken hearts. So we're, all of us are on both sides of that equation. So thank God God is a God of forgiveness. What does that mean? How does it work? It's a deep and difficult topic. I'm not pretending for one second to like cover it this morning. But um, it's a mystery, and I think that it, it, it will remain that after this morning. Trust me, okay? So I don't pretend to fully comprehend it. No one does. No one has to. I think what we do need for our own sake is to trust that in spite of all we may have done, in fact, in spite of all we've done, that we're forgiven. And no matter what has been done to us, we are accepted. Those are the two things that we need to trust in, I think, if we are going to reframe a view of God, recast our vision for life. So later in the book of John, we'll see that Jesus on the cross has done everything necessary to forgive and accept anyone and everyone. It's great news. It's unbelievable. And this forgiveness and acceptance is offered to everyone, everywhere, every day, and yet it isn't forced on anyone, anywhere, in any way. So one way we've often tried to describe this, what the Bible calls in other places, the glorious gospel of grace. It's one of the ways we say it together sometimes is there's nothing we can do to get God on our side because God is already on our side. And this begins with the way that Jesus offers forgiveness. 
It is in the how he offers forgiveness, I believe, that can transform how we view and think about God, ourselves, and even what life is for. It's how he offers forgiveness, specifically that I want to really focus in on this morning. So there's one story in the Bible, not in John's biography of Jesus, that shows Jesus forgiving a paralyzed man. Four guys bring out their friend who's paralyzed, can't move at all. They, and they bring him to Jesus to get him healed, okay? And Jesus forgives his sins. We have no idea if the paralyzed man believed in God at all. If he repented of his sins, if he asked for forgiveness, if he was sorry, if he has faith in God at all, Jesus forgives him anyway. This is not how forgiveness is supposed to work. Another time, Jesus forgives men who are killing him as they are killing him. They don't stop. They're not sorry. They don't repent. They show no faith in God whatsoever, and he forgives them. This is not how Forgiveness is supposed to work. And what we're going to see here in John 8, I think, is just a beautiful unfolding drama of Jesus once again blowing the doors off of how this forgiveness thing is supposed to work. So this is what the Bible says at the very beginning of John chapter 8. The religion scholars and the Pharisees led in a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery. They stood her in plain sight in front of everyone and said, Teacher, this woman was caught red-handed in the act of adultery. The law orders us to stone such persons. What do you say? Now they were trying to trap him into saying something incriminating so they could bring charges against him. See, at this point, Jesus has a reputation for being this really cool, merciful guy who would never do anything um, bad or mean to anyone. And so they think he's going to say, just let her off the hook. Right? And now they've got him because he's broken the rules. But it's not what Jesus does. Here's what the Bible says. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger in the dirt. And they kept badgering him. He straightened up and he said, The sinless one among you, go first. Throw the first stone. And then bending down again, he wrote some more in the dirt. Now hearing that, they all dropped their rocks and walked away, beginning with the older one, the oldest first. And the woman was left there alone with Jesus. Jesus stood up and spoke to her, Woman, where are they? Does no one condemn you? No one, Master. Neither do I, Jesus said. Go on your way, and from now on, don't sin. Now Jesus is doing a lot of things here in this scene. I'm not even pretending to get at all of them, okay? But he's doing a lot of things here to reframe how we see God and to recast how we see like ourselves and, and our lives and maybe even what life is for. And I'd like to point out just three that stick out to me and I'm just gonna wonder out loud about them with us, okay? So this is the first one. He isn't technically following the law. He's not the rules their religion clearly says when someone crosses the line that she crosses this is what happens you get stoned to death period end of story full stop now jesus never breaks the rules he doesn't say don't stone her instead he changes the subject from her sin 
to the heart of God. And everybody is really taken aback by this, okay? The second thing that, I, that I sticks out for me is that Jesus bent down into the dirt. I mean, I could just imagining that to me is just, this is, according to him, and he's going to say this later in this chapter, he's, he's going to say, I'm God. This is God in the dirt, hunched over, getting low, like getting in it with us and for us. We talked a couple weeks ago about how he chose John's baptism in a river. He didn't do it in a ceremony in some temple. He didn't do it with this purity pocket of spiritual giants over here. He did John the Baptist's baptism in a river where people are cleaning their laundry, where old men are fishing, where kids are swimming and probably peeing in the water, right? Jesus was in it. And here again in this scene, he's down in the dirt. No religion, and certainly no religious person at this time or since, would picture God like that. It's it's an incredible scene, and I think it says so much about who God is and what he's like. It's such an offensive image to religious people. It really is. But the third thing that I noticed, and this is the one we're really going to hone in on, is that Jesus doesn't condemn this woman. He doesn't. And, And here's the other thing he doesn't do, as we so often do, and as religion almost always does. He does not conflate acceptance, neither do I condemn you, with approval. Like, hey, one translation says, it says, leave your life of sin. So Jesus seems to think it's possible to accept people, I don't condemn you, without saying, hey, that means I approve of every, every little detail about your life. And man, I just think religion is terrible at that. I think the world is terrible at that. They conf- both, of, both of those groups conflate acceptance with approval like to accept someone as they are where they are just like they are means you approve of them and so whether it's in religion or on college campuses or whatever everybody waits okay get your act together get makes you can't have any sin in your life by our definition and then once you're perfect we will accept you because acceptance in religious circles And in secular circles, acceptance is approval. But Jesus doesn't do that. It's really fascinating, isn't it? Neither do I condemn you. Leave your life of sin. I totally accept you just as you are. But that doesn't mean I approve of every way you're leading your life. It is a nuanced, complex way to deal lovingly with people that I think is totally lost in today's world at a great detriment to, to human flourishing, in my opinion. One theologian put it like this, and I love this. He said, the religious authorities at that time would have embraced the importance of forgiveness and welcomed anyone who is truly repentant, but their forgiveness comes after repentance. Like, yeah, get your act together, say you're sorry, Stop doing that, and then, after we approve of you, then we will accept you, right? 
In contrast, Jesus portrayed a radical forgiveness as unconditional and thus at that which is offered before repentance. It's, this is brand new. No one thought about this before. And even now, if you're not like, whoa, if that's not blowing us away, then, then I'm not explaining it very well. Because that is a radically inclusive vision, an unbelievably gracious form of forgiveness. Now, last week, we had our baptism and our baby dedication, and it was so amazing. But the Sunday before, like I said, we talked about this idea of repentance very briefly because we were talking about baptism and the slogan of the church, you know, repent, believe, and be baptized. And it just means to repent just means to stop, turn around. Um, another way might be to think about it like give your life back to the God who gave you life and gave up his life for us. So repentance is something that we must do. But here's the thing, and, and, and it is not to get God to forgive us. And this is, again, this seems like such a small detail, but it's so important. Repentance is something that we must do but it is not in order to get God to forgive us. We have to repent in order for his forgiveness to matter to us. Now, I've used this story before to kind of illustrate this point in other talks, and I couldn't think of a better story, so I'm going to just roll it out again. But I've shared before that Lisa and I, don't, we don't fight, but we do have enthusiastic discussions, Okay. <laughs> Sometimes lots, <laughs> and one time, right in what I thought was the middle of an enthusiastic discussion, Lisa just kind of, she goes, oh, it's okay, Mike, I forgive you. <laughs> okay, now look, that's unconditional forgiveness, right? Now here's the thing, that only made things worse. <laughs> Why? Because I wasn't sorry <laughs> yet. I, was, I wasn't sorry yet. I, I believe me, I was going to get sorry. She was going to get me to sorry. All right, that's another talk for another day. But it made things worse because I wasn't sorry. In other words, I wasn't repentant. Her unconditional forgiveness didn't mend our relationship because I didn't think I needed. Do you see where we're headed here? Without repentance, forgiveness is still real it's still present, it's still being showered on us, but it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter to us. And this is what the position the religious leaders, the religious leaders were in. They didn't think they needed to repent either. They were like me, stupid, right? In other words, there's another place in the Bible where they're talking about these same religious leaders, and this is in the book of Luke, and it's a and to run up to a parable that Jesus is going to tell. And this is how, I, I love this. This is how Luke describes these Pharisees, these religious teachers. To those who were confident in their own righteousness and looked down on others, Jesus told this parable. Right? So that's what the Pharisees were, confident in their own righteousness. What do you mean, forgiveness? What do I need forgiveness for? I push all the right buttons. I jump through all the right hoops. I do everything I'm supposed to do. I avoid the things I'm supposed to avoid. Okay? C.S. Lewis put it this way. If you don't think you have anything to repent of, 
that's a good place to begin. I love that. Now, don't miss this. The Bible and Jesus, they are insisting that we must repent. But it is not in order to get God to forgive us. If that was the case, our repentance would be earning God's forgiveness. And now we are in this religious transaction with God. No, forgiveness is already available to everyone, everywhere, every day. In fact, Jesus on the cross, we're going to see this when we get to this scene in John. He says, it's finished. It's finished. Repentance isn't how we get forgiven. It is how we accept forgiveness. That's what it is. It is a gift of forgiveness. And this is where it gets so beautiful for us and so dangerous for Jesus. If what Jesus is saying about forgiveness is true, here's what this means. There's no need for religion. There's no need for any man-made plan, form, format, where you have to go through this motion, do this thing, in order to earn our forgiveness and acceptance. And the religious leaders, believe me, they saw right through that. One of the ways I've described this in the past is, religion is like a rain dance under an umbrella in a rainstorm. Where we're insisting, look at everything I'm doing, God, to get you to rain your grace and acceptance and forgiveness down on me. We're trying to earn something under our umbrella that God is already giving everyone. So he's already giving it to everyone. Repentance is just putting down the umbrella and being seen in the rain. That's what it is. And so... But by offering forgiveness before repentance, okay, Jesus was destroying religion's monopoly on forgiveness. And the religious establishment picked up on that right away. In fact, later in this chapter, they're going to try to stone someone else. Jesus. By the end of this chapter, they're picking up stones again because he was really bad for business. Really bad. When an elite class is in charge of deciding who is and who is not fit for forgiveness, they wield enormous power. And Jesus was clearly stripping religion and its leaders of that role. And offering forgiveness before repentance, apart from religion, is a huge part of the reason they decided, we've got to kill this guy. And it's also what can bring us to life in new ways as it transforms our relationship with God. We're going to see him in a new way, ourselves and our lives. Notice what doesn't happen here in this story. Jesus didn't say to the woman caught in adultery, do you promise to leave your life of sin? He didn't ask that before he forgave her. Are you really, really sorry for all that you've done wrong? He didn't say that either. We know this woman is scared and embarrassed, but we have no idea if she has any faith, no clue if she, has, if she has or if she will repent. Jesus doesn't wait. He tells her right now, as you are, not as you should be, naked and afraid, guilty and exposed, I forgive you. I forgive you, regardless of how you feel about me. Now, can you feel how scandalous that is? That's crazy. But it's also 
beautiful and brilliant. Because only this way of forgiving allows us to freely sort through for ourselves how do we really feel about God? It's not this transaction. He's not strong-arming me. He's not trapping me. He's not manipulating me. The ball's in my court now. And I think this woman, in that scene, all of that realization is rushing in on her. And I wonder if this woman felt this way.
tonight, everybody. Wow. Look, don't be overly impressed. She did just turn 14. <laughs> Holy cow. So good. There's, there's all oh, just the, the reason it broke my heart to not have the projector today is because that's a song by Rihanna. And I just can't tell you how much I love it when somebody preaches the gospel and they don't know they're doing it. Because that song, you go look up the words for that song. It's unbelievable. This, this line, funny, you're the broken one, but I'm the only one who needed saving. That is the gospel. That's the gospel of grace. It's so beautiful. Clearly, Jesus thinks it would be best for this woman to repent, to accept his forgiveness. And he tells her, sin no more. He's saying, turn your life around by accepting your acceptance. Receive your forgiveness. Surrender to, to God. His, but his acceptance isn't approval. But repentance is not a condition to get forgiveness. It is the gift of forgiveness. The way Jesus is offering forgiveness as a gift, that's what can change the way we relate to God because that kind of God is the kind of God that we want to stay in our lives. Do you see it? It changes how we see ourselves and, and, and our life because it means that if this is true, if what Jesus is saying, if this is how forgiveness and, great, and the grace of God works, then it means that we can live with nothing to hide, nothing to prove, nothing to fear, nothing to lose. Maybe it's easiest to see it by comparing two types of communities. So a community based on religion, right? These are communities where you always have something to hide because they are steeped in pretending and pretension because they're built upon everything is okay between you and God only when everything is okay with you. Now, you, some of us have been there, we've been in those communities, and we know that, right? So you better look good, and you better have your act together. The underlying dynamic in a community like that, it's not always obvious until something goes wrong, right? And then something goes wrong in your life, somebody leaves, somebody shows up, Somebody gets broken. It reminds me of that line from the Eagle song. Someone's going to emergency. Someone's going to jail, right? And then all of a sudden, the dynamic, that cozy, warm feeling you had when you had your life put together in a community like that, when you were towing the line, that turns cold. And by the way, I'm proud, I'm proud to say that Storyline is a plan B community. <laughs> Let's just admit it. If I actually really had my life together, we, you know, I could be with the cool kids throwing rocks at everybody. But I don't, and you don't either. I'm up and I'm down. I believe and I doubt. I get it and I get confused. I'm all over the place. We all are. This is a plan B community. And if community is based in religion, you always have something to prove. Because forgiveness is an asset. It's an attainment. It, it's something that you've earned and something you've achieved, and you've got to keep achieving it. And this means that in communities like that, forgiveness is the goal. It's the finish line. Everything ends with forgiveness. Like, whoo, got my forgiveness, check. But for communities based on grace, forgiveness isn't an asset. It's a gift to be accepted and enjoyed. It isn't the goal. It's the source of life. It's not the end. It's just the beginning. In religion, there is always something to fear because 
Forgiveness is always about mercy, okay? What do we need to do to, invo- to avoid punishment? Like, Jesus presents an entirely different view of God and vision for life in this and in so many other stories in the Bible, one where forgiveness is about grace. Mercy is amazing, but it's this much of grace. We lived in L.A. for eight years, and one of the things that you learn really quickly is when you can and you can't get on the freeway. Because it's like, it's ridiculous. It's just indescribable how bad the traffic can be unless you're in the carpool lane. Okay, now if you've been out to LA, then you know this. There is a lane to the far left. This is your left, right? And so um, there's this unwritten rule. You can go as fast as you want in this carpool lane. So four or five lanes of traffic is just gridlock. It's just terrible. You're just sucking smog in these four or five lanes. And over here, it's like, all these, it's like the Daytona 500 in the carpool lane. I can't even imagine how you could ever get a speeding ticket in that carpool lane. But I actually know someone who did. It's true. Now, I'm not, I'm not gonna tell you her name to protect the innocent, me, right? But somehow, but somehow, Lee, somehow this person I know managed to get a speeding ticket in the carpool lane in a 1992 Ford Escort wagon. I didn't even know they went fast enough to get speeding tickets in that lane, but she did it. It's quite an accomplishment. Now, I want you to imagine if the police officer pulls her over, okay, and comes up to her and says, hey, I'm going to let you off with a warning. That is mercy. That's getting out of something bad. But now reimagine that scene. The police officer comes up to her window and says, hey, not only were you speeding, this is going to go on your record, and I'm afraid there's not just a fine, but there's also jail time. But here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to pay your ticket personally. I'm going to serve your jail time. I'm going to give you my badge so that you have my driving record. That's grace. It's not just getting you out of something bad. It's getting you into something good. And here's the thing. Forgiveness is just the beginning of what God wants to do for us and in us and through us. It is not the end It's not the pinnacle, it's the foundation. Understanding that, seeing that, can reorient the entire trajectory of our life and how we view what life is about because outside of being set right and accepted and forgiven and connected openly and freely to God, so much of life is about hiding and proving and fearing and losing. Life devolves into compensating for this deep, existential disconnection, this separation that we can't quite explain, but that all human beings experience. You heard it in the song that Sinai just sang. It's this soul-level longing. Religion comes in and leverages that reality, that God-given drive in us to connect and to be in, in, in open and free and loving relationships. And religion leverages that reality to control us. Relig- religion draws a line in the sand and then tells us all, you're on the wrong side of it. And to get onto our side, which is God's side, of course, you have to do X, Y, and Z. Well, in this encounter with this woman in John chapter 8, Jesus blows up this conception of God and he does it so beautifully 
The Bible doesn't tell us actually when he bent down what it is that he wrote in the sand. But there is a scene in the film, The Passion, that is so amazing. In fact, it's so amazing, I was going to show it this morning. (laughs) But it shows Jesus kneeling down into the dirt, but not writing in the sand. He does something amazing in this scene. He draws the proverbial line in the sand. And the camera is like behind Jesus, And all you see is his finger, slow motion, drawing this line in the sand. And in the background, out of focus, are these religious leaders with rocks. And they just start dropping their rocks and walking away. It's so powerful. First time I saw it, I was just moved to tears. And then it gets even better. Because as he's drawing this line, he's done drawing this line. Uh, uh, And the religious leaders are on the other side of the line, right? And then this surprise, this shocker, because from off screen, trembling, hands sliding across the ground towards the feet of Jesus is the hand of the woman caught in adultery who has just discovered that Jesus placed himself on her side of the line. The law religion put these men on the other side ready to kill this woman with stones literally with pieces of the promised land this was death by rejection and jesus saves her in every way by placing himself on her side so powerful so beautiful it's the gospel of grace We see it in ancient philosophy, we read it in our best literature, we experience it in our best movies and songs. All of human history is an epic portrayal of this disconnection, this something missing, this feeling that life is on the other side of a line that we just can't get across. In all of our efforts to find some sense of meaning and purpose and peace, whether it's through religious piety or political power or social status or romance or money or success, they just never work. They never get us over the line. One of the biggest challenges in my life is my vocation. I teach at Lakeshore High School, and I do this. And I'm constantly battling. When I I reject my acceptance, when I think I have to earn my forgiveness, I'm constantly battling battling this deep-seated, like, self-involvement. Like, am I good enough? I've got to prove it or lose it. And life is one anxiety after another. This morning, when everything was going wrong, I'm like, oh, no one's ever coming back. Because it's going to be so bad. Right? And I'm like, wait, that's what I'm talking about this morning. That's, that's how fast we forget. It's how fast I do. I worry about not being good enough, helpful enough. I question my worthiness. I second-guess my abilities, my qualifications, my effectiveness. And I wonder what people think of me. All that also known as Hell hell it is a grueling way to live and jesus is inviting us to be set free from that it can turn what should be an honor and a privilege and a joy into a chore instead of an opportunity to experience and enjoy and extend the grace every day becomes this tense anxious test this existential gamble to try and earn our acceptance and approval from others from ourselves from god We've called it lately, it's the dreadmill, where you're sprinting and getting nowhere. 
stuck on the wrong side of the line. The point is, whether we are living disconnected from God or having to religiously earn our connection with God, all of life is about me. Me. There's 8 billion people on the planet and 99.9% of the time and all my effort, energy, and focus goes to one, me. But when we accept our acceptance, when we look up like this woman did and realize that God has gotten down in the dirt with us and he's drawn a line in the sand in a way that includes me, he put himself on my side. Repentance is no longer a condition that we have to meet, another test that we have to pass. It's part of the gift of God. Repentance is simply our response to grace. And once we choose that, it's with great relief and gratitude and incredible joy. It's the beginning of what Jesus is going to call in two chapters, the abundant life. Accepting the forgiveness of Jesus that he's offering us first while we're still paralyzed on the mat or like the woman when we're naked and afraid, guilty and exposed means we are free to live with nothing to hide, nothing to prove, nothing to fear and nothing to lose. It is freedom and the peace of divine self-forgetfulness. There's a great line in the film, Apocalypse Now. Marlon Brando's talking to Martin Sheen, and he says, true freedom is not just freedom from the opinions of others. It is freedom from your own opinion of yourself. The final judge. The forgiveness of God is a gift of grace. It comes before we repent. But if we don't repent, it doesn't matter to us. God your maker, the creator of heaven and earth, the power who spoke and the universe leapt into existence, the one who bid the earth to spin and the sun to shine, the eternal and infinite, Elohai Selakot, forgives you, accepts you, loves you, and likes you. You have nothing to hide. There is nothing to prove. You have nothing to fear and nothing to lose.
what you needed proof you saw her bathing on the roof her beauty and the moonlight overthrew you she tied you to a kitchen chair she broke your throne and she cut your hair and from your lips she drew a hallelujah 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 just put that together this morning. Unbelievable. So, so good, ladies. Thank you. Mm. So is there one word to describe you? How about forgiven? Or how about accepted? How about loved? Is there one word to describe your life? Knowing, believing, trusting that God has drawn the line in a way that places him on your side. How about hallelujah? That is repentance. It's yet another gift of God. And it's where and how it all begins to change. How we see God, ourselves, and our lives. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for this time and this place and for this opportunity to be together. I've never been so thankful for all of the many hands that come together throughout the week and every morning to make our gatherings happen. So thank you so much for all of them. And thank you so much for your forgiveness that you have come to us, 
that you have gotten down in the dirt, that you've drawn the line in a way that places us on your side. God, I pray our response would be hallelujah. And we would step out in faith into a new way of relating to you, seeing ourselves, and seeing what life is for. God, I pray that as we leave here this morning, you would help us to grow and remain open, alert, expectant, and dependent on you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you so much for coming, folks. We'll see you next week.